OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Scott, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Ask an Angel. Uh, we've uh, conducted 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 uh, interviews and we're always excited to get the opportunity to speak with investors and people that own and crush it in the investment community. So uh, we're excited today to be speaking with you uh, and get to learn a lot more about what you're looking for from an investment standpoint uh, while learning a little bit about yourself. So maybe what we can do is we'll start off by if you can give us a little bit of a background on yourself, like where you come from, uh, where you reside, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of yourself, and then maybe uh, finish it off with one thing about you that nobody would know. Oh, interesting. All right, so my background, I mean, most VCs probably say, hey, I've got a non-traditional background, but mine is pretty non-traditional. I actually started off way, way back when, when I was a little kid, I used to sell uh, brownies and baseball cards and Pokemon cards and Beanie Babies and made what was back then a lot of money. But to me as a little kid, back, you know, looking back is really not that much money today, but sort of got that entrepreneurial streak early on. Founded my first company in college, really it was a beer money business. It wasn't supposed to be that big. We didn't think it would go anywhere. And then two years later, it actually did go somewhere and we sold it and immediately founded a second company, sold that a year later after we'd all graduated, my co-founder and I. And then I had an opportunity to go back inside the intelligence community in the U.S. and work for a director doing, you name it, all sorts of special projects from on the intelligence side to the operations side to everything in between. And learned a ton of different random skill sets, which actually pay off pretty well with running a fund today. And then started angel investing, met a founder, a uh, former founder who became a giant angel investor in our region around DC. Has about 130 angel investments, ended up working with him on a number of those deals, learned how to actually invest, which is something I didn't necessarily understand uh, when I was running my companies. And continued to angel invest. Ended up joining a giant company, which is actually uh, has a presence in Ontario. It's called Circo. And I was running M&A for them and trying to figure out what to do with various parts of the company, including the Canada business, uh, which is an interesting business in its own right. Uh, then I was the entrepreneur residence at AARP, which is a huge nonprofit in the U.S. It's about $2 billion or $3 billion a year. And I was dreaming up ideas and trying to figure out companies they should work with from the aging in place perspective to keep seniors in their own homes and out of senior centers and healthier. And then ran Baltimore Angels, which is a, a big angel group in Baltimore, about 70 members. And that's how Early Light Ventures, which is the fund I run, got started. There are about 15 members in Baltimore Angels that came to me and said, hey, can I just write you a check just to pull money together and, and you decide where to invest? And after 15 of them raised their hand and said, yeah, I actually do want to do this. Here's a check. We decided to raise this fund. And then fast forward 18 months later, the fund is actually active. We have eight companies in the portfolio. It's B2B software only. It's primarily pre-seed to early A. So what that actually translates to is valuations at the low end of about 3 million, up to the high end being 15, maybe 18 million post money. And we're looking for companies that generally have revenue. So around 300, 400K in ARR, up to about two or even three or four in ARR, depending on the terms and depending on the sector. And we really value founders that are, that are hustlers, they have a lot of grit, a lot of tenacity. They're really capital efficient. They know what they want to do. They know what they want to solve. They're already solving it. And in a lot of cases, they have at least some experience in the sector they're disrupting. 
the one thing that sort of stands out is we do back a lot of first-time founders. We do back some second-time founders, but most of them are first-time founders. We actually have the most luck and the most, uh, I think it's the most exciting to back someone that's doing this for the first time. They sort of have that chip on their shoulder, which is something we really value. I love it. And one thing that nobody would know about you that you want to share. I don't know. I'm pretty open books. Most people know <laughs> everything about me, but, uh, one thing most people don't know about me is I actually chase tornadoes. So I actually, way back in college, I, I started the storm chasing club at UVA uh, in Charlottesville and I studied meteorology as a minor. I didn't actually finish that minor, but I took a bunch of courses and I forecast the weather for the, the newspaper, the cap daily, which is the campus newspaper. And then I went out to the Midwest and actually chased tornadoes. So anytime there's a severe storm, my partner knows uh, who to look to. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So any, uh, I don't know, close calls or flying cows that you were like, wow, what the hell did that just happen? No, no flying cows. I was kind of an idiot when I started. I was a, you know, I was a college kid, actually high school kid when I first really started chasing. And I thought it was a bright idea to, to chase at night a couple of times, which when you're chasing a tornado, you have to actually be able to see it if you don't have yeah. good radar, which back then you didn't have radar, like mobile radar that was very accurate or it was time delayed. And there were a couple of situations where I was trying to figure out, look out my window, like where is this thing actually coming from? and found out once or twice that it was actually coming from about half a mile away and coming toward me. So I had a couple of close calls and uh, <laughs> a couple of scary moments and, uh, that are pretty memorable. That's pretty awesome. Well, it creates, uh, creates some excitement and gets the blood flow going, I guess, and the gas pedal going. They're really pushing it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you had that happen. I wasn't sleeping for about two or three days after that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you're telling lots of people about that story. You should have seen me driving so fast away from this thing. It was coming after me. Yeah, it's a story I never told my parents. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember uh, when I was younger, I had uh, uh, driving, driving home and uh, my parents pre-warned me. They said, uh, you shouldn't drive home. The roads are icy. And I'm like, ah. So driving home and uh, I'm going down the highway, doing whatever. The speed limit was 100, so I was probably doing around 85 because it was snowing out, pitch black. And all of a sudden, my car just did two 360s. And uh, for some odd reason, I just threw it into neutral. I went around twice, put it in drive, and I kept driving. And I was like, holy crap, what just happened? And uh, it just all happened like, uh, like you felt like you were a race car driving, but didn't know what was going on, but then you just kept moving. So I got home. And I never told anybody. And like 20 years later, I was like sitting with my parents and I'm like, you know what? That one time you told me and uh, because it was the fear of I uh, shouldn't be doing this. But at the same time, uh, the correction that occurred and how fast it did. So just like storm chasing, uh, you got yourself into a predicament and you had to get yourself out. So once you did, you felt great. But I probably should have shared the story. But now, hey, look, I'm telling the whole world. So there you go. Or whoever's going to listen. So... Uh, what I really liked about when we were chatting before, and you mentioned this, is you come from a different experience and different background where you took something, you worked on it, and then it turned into something that you didn't expect to come out of it. So you were kind of just, uh, I don't know, you were like baking bread, and all of a sudden, you know, three weeks later, people came over and they were like, I kind of like this bread. And you were like, really? It was just a hobby, just doing something, and then all of a sudden it clicked. Can you give us a little bit more background on that? Because I really think that that probably helps you a lot more now in your investment theories on how you're going after the thesis that you are, is that you take a lot of your background experience. So maybe share a bit more about what you went through when you first started. 
Yeah, it really was not a sexy idea. It wasn't anything that groundbreaking or exciting. It was 2005 when we started the company, so it feels like another era. It was literally, there was a pug named Winston. So my co-founder had a pug named Winston and we could never find him the toys and things he wanted. And we, we actually could find it. We'd have to drive half an hour to go get it. We figured it's 2005. There's got to be a better way to do this. So we'd set up an online store and we started shipping stuff from overseas, obviously a lot cheaper than it would be in the U.S. Put a bunch of marketing behind it and charged what we thought were fair rates for the things we we're selling. We made a bunch of customized things like leases and chew toys and pet fountains and you name it. And we started selling out of them almost immediately. And we thought, all right, great. We can throw a party. We can, uh, you know, we can go do something else. And we can go get Winston a bunch of toys. I mean, it was, it was great. But then we kept selling out and realized there's a huge gap in the market. There's no one really doing this, at least in 2005. And we have this unique advantage that we're really good at marketing uh, the stuff to the right people. And we're doing it really cheaply. Why don't we just double, triple, quadruple down on this? And we kept doubling down every week or every month. And then fast forward two years later, we were at a decent amount of scale for, for that year, 2007. I think the biggest thing I, I took away from it is the market will sort of tell you what works and what doesn't work. And as soon as you have something that works, you got to really go at it hard and really put the chips on the, on the table and, and make those bets. And if you're not getting the traction you want, you're not getting the feedback that you want, meaning you're not driving sales, you're probably not doing something right and sticking out for too long is not the right way to do it, especially early on, which I wouldn't say it's a mistake a lot of founders do early on is they'll have a product that maybe looks awesome, that has something that they seem really sexy, that they think is solving something in the market, but it's not selling. Or the sales cycles are drawn out way beyond where they should be. Some will keep going on that and some will pivot at the last second. Some will pivot earlier on. I guess the biggest takeaway is when the market wants something, it'll tell you. You have to market it right and you have to get it out to enough people to actually see it. But once you're selling something, even if the product is not, doesn't look that great, you're probably solving some kind of a problem. That's really good. You got to focus. So then taking from that analogy, do you think, and from your learnings, do you think that a startup should, uh, if they've, they've got a product, they should get it to market right away. You know what, flaws and all, just get it in there, play with it, see what the market demands for it, see if you can get some sales. If you don't, then you know what, pivot and pivot quick. Don't, don't waste your time. Uh, if your marketing's not that great, then maybe work on that. Like, is there some other advice you'd give around that to kind of play in that MVP and that test phase? Yeah, I think one mistake, which a lot of founders make, is they'll sort of play around in the sandbox too long versus actually going out and letting other people come in with them. I think you have to build, so you obviously have to have something to present to someone. You can't just present a, you know, a PowerPoint or a wireframe. You actually have to have a working product. But I think bringing people in early, especially potential buyers or clients, and getting their feedback and actually co-developing it with them. And not only gets buy-in from them and it makes them more likely to actually use the product because they're building it with you, but you're getting a lot of insights that you ordinarily wouldn't get. So I think it's wise to bring people in, even at an alpha level, even if the product doesn't look good, you just caveat it and say, Hey, this is, we're building this as we speak. I mean, literally here's, here's the dev environment. Here it is. Come work with us. And it's, it's a good tactic. Most companies do it. It's, it's a great way of driving sales quickly too, because you get big logos easily. And you can do that with a more nimble team, right? I, I think you're kind of looking at that from a, a smaller team inside of a big organization, too much bureaucracy, too many people touching it, too many hands-on might cause the product to take two years to get to market. Whereas in a small form factor setup, you can really drive out uh, that sales and marketing uh, generation by getting the product to market, even if it's falling apart, test the market, come back, iterate, test, iterate until you find that product market fit. Yeah, I mean, the biggest advantage a startup has a new one is speed. And there's also nothing to lose. 
So if you have to change your product around in a drastic way earlier on, you don't lose as much. And you can also develop something rapidly, you can iterate on it rapidly versus going to a bigger company, which may have you know, infinitely more resources, but they also have processes and procedures and approvals and they don't move quick. So that's the one advantage a startup needs to exploit is you got to move fast and you got to get as much feedback as possible. So you, so you mentioned the moving fast part now. How does moving fast work with this, uh, the ideation phase of things where people look at a product and they think they can build six products and then launch them all at the same time? So how do you kind of vet through that to get someone to that end goal, which is sales? Like, what do you do to shift that? I mean, the biggest thing is go out and have people that actually would buy it, go use it or test it and see what they say. And at the end, it's not, it's not necessarily the feedback, it's the actual action. It's the ask at the end of, if this is live and if I build these extra features or these extra add-ons, are you going to buy this? And if so, what would you pay for it? What would the process look like? How many approvals would it take? Who would use it? what kind of permissions or things you need built in that aren't built in now. It's you basically build to a sale versus building something and then selling it. It's just a lot easier that way. So data, 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 collect as much data as you possibly can observe everything, break the rules if you need to, but just figure out how to get that consumer to love it, purchase it and work through that product cycle with you. Yeah. Cause most companies don't have unique problems. Some do, but in general, a problem is, 80, 90% universal across the sector and industry. The same problem is across almost every company. So if you're solving that key problem enough to, where someone's going to buy it, you can make minor customizations and, and tweaks later on. You just have to have the core functionality done and you do that with someone that's actually going to use it in those industries you're targeting. And how does it work on um, product almost being unique, different, keeping it to that, uh, I guess, viewpoint, but not diversifying too much, like just going to market with one product. Is that something you'd recommend or do you want to have a bunch of products that you're testing with at the same time? What's what allows you to be focused and close deals and move quicker? Is it one or many, or is it a handful to play with and then net it down to one? How do you kind of look at that? Cause you were looking at selling a lot of pet products. So how did you decide what was going to go to market first and what was going to be successful? So we, we had a core group of people that we call, we didn't actually have a name for it. And think about it, but they're like the most loyal customers that spend the most money on the platform that we knew represented most of what our market was. So if a company is going after a certain type of company or a certain size of company, you make sure that they're actually in those sort of test cases or use cases early on. I think you want to build really no more than two or three products. So if you have 10, then there's a sort of issue of what do you focus energy on? What do you focus resources on? And chances are, if you're doing more than one or two or three, they're probably not going to be very good. And you're also not sitting on infinite resources. You don't have 50 developers to usually developing a product. You've got like two, three, maybe half a person. So you have to really focus your resources on what you think is the biggest ROI and the best thing that's going to sell quickly. No, that's a, that's a good point. So if you look at product versus technology, what interests you the most and what do you kind of go after now? Are you still impartial? Do you like both uh, from a hardware, hard good, or are you still into tech and you want anything digital? Where do you fit in that space? Uh, so it's all software. So it's gotta be actual digital hardware is one thing we look at a little bit, but it's just really hard to scale and the margins usually aren't that great. Hardware can be kind of interesting because you can obviously build a lot of things with that and you can customize it and the experience can be very, very, uh, you can have a lot of control over that. But with software, you can scale it a lot faster. Obviously, deploying it's a lot easier in most cases, and you can have a much bigger impact. And for us, at least from an investment lens, you make a lot more money on software than hardware in most cases. So that's where we focus. Okay. And I guess, and you mentioned this, is that 
you know, you can add some bells and whistles to your product, but really at the end of the day, you got to get a, a customer in there using it, working with it. Uh, the sell feature isn't always going to be the, the bells and whistles that are added on. It's that core product, the engine. Uh, how do you get startups to focus on that part and then spend all their money on marketing and advertising and not get stuck in the dev hole of uh, um, iterate, iterate when they don't even have a product fully in market. They're too afraid to put it in market. So how do you kind of coach them through that? That can be hard. I mean, I come in, we had a product in my second company. It was a mobile technology company. It was actually, uh, it got us in a lot of trouble. It was the biggest, we became one of the biggest ringtone pirates in the world at one point when they were popular in 2007 and eight. We, we, uh, we technology that enabled that. And we were finicky with our product too. We wanted to sit on it and make sure it looks really good. The UI back then at least was slick. It was easy to use. We didn't want to release until it was perfect. All the bugs were, were out of there, but there's no way to do that especially these days, you just got to iterate a lot faster and get it out in the market and find those bugs sort of through the people using it actually earlier on. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to release a product when it's not completely ready and you have to release it with some functionality. It actually, actually it has to work. It can't just break when you try to log in, but in general, having people early on that are early adopters that have worked with you to develop the products. If there are bugs, there are imperfections, they'll help you fix it and they'll flag it. I mean, there's one good example when I was at Circo, we use Bloomberg government quite a bit, my colleague and I, at least in the US, to figure out what does the market look like? What are these different market sizes? Who are the players? What are the contracts? Canada was a black hole. Canada has uh, a lot of data and it's available province by province, but it's just extremely hard to figure out. And there's no details and it's not granular, granular at all. But with BGov, we were running really complex searches and we were using it every single day. We're actually, to some extent, almost breaking the products. And we'd find bugs constantly. We'd send it over to the team there and say, hey, fix this. But since we were so bought in and so addicted to it, had to use it, I didn't care if there was a bug as long as it was fixed. Yeah, so you can just start to kind of push that along, right? You're, I love what I'm doing here, but hey, guys, FYI, this is not working for me. And then yeah. let them kind of iterate on it. Yeah, I guess that, that goes from the business being supported, right? It's, it, it fixes a problem and you can utilize that and work it until they update it, right? And, and hopefully they don't do a rehaul on it while you're just getting comfortable with the product, but that tends to happen sometimes too, where uh, the business feels they need to put in a whole new functional skill set, and then it just screws up your user experience and then you either just come disgruntled or you build your own, so. And you're never gonna, you're never gonna satisfy everybody. When I was at one of the Intel communities, I was running software development for a huge kind of implementation development effort in, every single person had a different opinion about the different fields and colors and characters. And you can't satisfy everybody. It's just impossible. And it's not even worth it. But as long as you satisfy the core users, that's really all that matters. And you make a good point there that, you know, you've gone through this journey of building your product, you know, isolating it down to two or three great products to get to market. You're not on 10. And now that you've got this product out there, you've got to start testing it, getting people on the system, using it, solving the problem. Uh, you've accommodated the speed factors. You jumped in right and went quick. Uh, now you're, you're trying to figure out what's that next iteration of my product or what's that next thing I need to do. And if it becomes dev hell and you're just deving the crap out of this, you're taking away from the core experience of what those original users or that original problem was. So sometimes you have to take a step back, take a breath, look at it and decide, you know, where does this product want to go in the next two to three years? And can we use that slow Apple release and come out with things once a year, but make sure that it's impactful that every time I do come out with a release, it's solving a bigger, more impactful problem 
than just trying to become a pure dev site where you're just always updating, updating, and then your product becomes so massively big and convoluted that nobody can solve any problem because they don't understand how the system works. And one thing that surprises me, especially B2B, is a lot of companies don't ask, they don't actually ask for feedback. So if someone is using the platform inside a company, you actually could push little reminders saying in the bottom right or top left, whatever you want to put it, saying, how satisfied are you with this? What features do you want in it? What are you unhappy about? What are you happy about? And you can actually get feedback from people using the product for free. That's one thing I, I think a lot of companies should do more of. No, it makes sense. You know what? Let them help you develop your product and figure yeah. out what the next focus is, right? If you get enough feedback and 80% of people say that you should move this or change this, then you've got your next product iteration. So you're right. It makes, uh, it sounds amazing, but I think there's also this, stigma that if I'm building and raising funds, I also need to be building my dev team so that I can keep growing all this aspect. And it seems where in early stage companies, they build their dev team too quick and their sales team is slowly trailing behind and their support team. And one becomes way larger than the other. And then it becomes a convoluted mess on what am I really trying to solve and how am I getting to the next stage? Yeah, that was a problem. So I worked at Trusted Metrics, one of my angel investments for about six months. I was helping Mike, the founder, run the company and sort of figure out where to pivot a little bit. They had a great product. It was a sim product. It was nothing super sexy or super complicated, but it worked really well and it was light and it was cheap and it was better than most things in the market. But the biggest problem was they were really bad at showing what it actually did and communicating that to people. And they had these really dense materials that most people look at and say, I don't understand half of what's even in here. And what does this actually do and why is this better than Alien Vault or SecureWorks or all the other legacy providers that are 10 times more expensive? And when you actually say we are literally one-tenth of the cost, we have all the functionality and it's easier to use and we have these extra features, really plainly in the marketing and the sales efforts, you sell a hell of a lot faster versus trying to build a perfect product and not communicating that adequately. So a lot of it comes down to how do you market it? How do you get it out there to get people to see it? Yep. Let, let other people... Um, solve the problem by finding it themselves because they see it as a pain point and then make it so easy that the glue just sticks and they want to participate and use it and continue to use it. And SEO is also heavily underrated. I know some companies really accentuate it, but SEO is one of the biggest bang for the bucks you're going to get anywhere. And a lot of companies just don't do it, especially in B2B. Hmm. It's interesting. And that the, uh, you mentioned the B2B side is, uh, it lacks on that. I think it's also a lack of knowledge. We're all consumers in a way. We're all social media people. And we forget that businesses have to interact with businesses and that businesses want to do deals uh, with vendors in other countries. And that they have to have a way to manage that workflow, that deal flow, and whatever that might be. And those people are looking for smooth, easy, clean products as well. And there's a lot of great companies that do a, a B2B funnel. Uh, and how do you make sure that you're accommodating these businesses with the same aspirations as you would as a consumer facing product at the same time. So now you've kind of gone through this product guy, you're investing in great companies. So maybe tell us a little bit more about your fund and what your, uh, how that's operating and working. So we're based outside DC and Baltimore. We have uh, three venture partners, one in Baltimore, two around DC. And then my partner and I are in DC. We focus, I would say, nationwide. And we also do look at Canada pretty heavily. We don't do a lot of deals in Silicon Valley. We don't do a lot of deals in LA. It's a very well-developed ecosystem out there. And candidly, we can't compete for a lot of the better deals versus being in the ecosystems that we're in where we're, you know, generally a known entity, not so much in some, 
and there's really not a lot of competition for deals. So we're not competing. We're actually working with the founders, which is a lot easier. It's sort of a, an unsexy thesis. So their companies are not going to be unicorns in most cases. They're not going to be $500 million exits. The founders aren't coming in saying we're going to be ubiquitous or we're going to you know, dominate the world or change the world in any real big material way. They're basically saying, I know the problem. I'm going to fix that problem. I may fix one or two small adjacent problems. I'm going to fix it for this industry or this couple of industries. And then I'm going to sell. And I know who I'm going to sell to. It's one of these five companies. And that's generally what we're investing in. It's sort of a, a lower risk, unsexy version of venture capital. And it's worked really well from an angel perspective and so far in the fund. I love it. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Not everything needs to be a unicorn. Everything needs to sell at the end of the day. So if you can build up an entity that's going to allow uh, them to get to a sale point, that's what every investor is looking for, right? An opportunity to exit and liquidate and be able to continue to keep doing this and putting it back into the system so it can keep regenerating, right? Yeah, and a lot of VCs, they want 10x returns or more. They want you know unicorn-type returns, which the odds of finding one are extremely... It, it's, it's not easy. I think a unicorn is like six and 10,000 or something, and a 10x return is like 4% of all venture investments, so it's really hard to find. But there's this kind of ignored area, which most VCs don't do, and... It's great for us because we work with about 170 other funds and they'll send us the deals that aren't 10Xs in their mind, which you know, they're probably right. They're not 10Xs, but they're probably three to five or even six or seven X type deals and they're quick and they're cash and they're clean. And the founders make out the best because they're not diluted really at all. They have most of their equity and they're clean deals. There's no crazy earnouts. There's no crazy preferences on top. They get their money and all the other early employees get their money too. So it works out well for everybody. Well, you've converted me. I'm even more interested <laughs> now, but uh, no, I love it. It's, uh, it's a fantastic way of, of looking at the market. For us, we try to look at, uh, on our fund side, is we look at short, mid, and long-term investments. And we do want to have you up on the short term because that brings the value back to the investors so that they'll want to continue to work with you. And then your long-term, you know, you're going to put a long play in, uh, and that might be a larger type investment, but you're hoping that it will go the length and uh, become that maybe uh, partial unicorn or half unicorn, or maybe it makes it all the way. But at the end of the day, you got to find a, a staging value because at the end of the day, you go 10 years, 20 years, and you don't get anybody exiting. You really aren't doing a great job on, on helping those companies go through that, uh, the system, if you will. Um, and we all want to find some sort of liquidation at some point. Yeah. And paper markups are great, obviously, for, for feeling good and, and maybe raising another fund, but the actual cash on cash is what matters in the end. Agreed. Yep. No, that's pretty cool. So you mentioned the 170 funds that uh, to send you deal flow. How does that system work? Is it uh, all in the same space or these are all unicorn based uh, businesses looking for them and they just send you guys all of the uh, call it the seconds of the, of the business and boom, you've got a great little setup there. A lot of that is that they're, they're hunting for, for bigger exits. And a lot of these like Citus health is a good example. That's one we led maybe nine, 10 months ago. And it's, again, it's, this is about as unsexy as you're going to get. It literally is a patient engagement platform for home hospice providers, for home infusion providers, for durable medical equipment providers. I mean, it's, it's, about as, it's, not, it's about as unsexy as it gets, literally. But the company had great metrics. The founder knows exactly what she's doing. She's a home infusion nurse for about 10 or 12 years. She knew the problem firsthand. She's solving the problem exactly how you should solve it. And she's selling through channel partners. So again, she's not spending a lot of money on sales and marketing, but she's just growing very quickly. And it's generally almost cash flow positive. It was passed over to us from actually two different funds. And they both said, I like the founder. I like what they're doing. But this is not a $200 million exit. This isn't even a $100 million exit potentially. 
So I can't make anything more than eight or 10 X on it. And I'm pretty confident in that, but this is right up your alley. And it was, so we led the deal. We ended up closing the entire round for, for Melissa in about three weeks and the company's off to the races and is doing really well. And she already has a couple of companies that want to buy her. So it's, it's this very unsexy thesis that worked out well for us and it worked out you know, relatively well for the, the funds that sent it to us because we, we funded it. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I've been, uh, today I had a great call with another um, family office slash fund and they had their own unique way of running their fund um, and their thesis and, and you have a great one as well. So it's, it's great to see that there's diversification in how people are viewing their uh, portfolios and how they're going after the market. And there's a fit for everybody, but there's a, a really good fit if you can figure out a way to balance out exits and wins uh, versus just going in for the big money and trying to carry that ship the whole way through to make it a unicorn, right? And don't get me wrong, unicorns are great, but that's why they're called unicorns. So the hit <laughs> miss is pretty hard. So, Yeah, that's, that's a good point. As an angel, I, I invested the same thesis and of my angel portfolio is about 18, yeah, 18 B2B SaaS companies in there. My failure rate is like 10%. Versus yeah. a lot of funds, which are 50 or 60%. The only thing that's not as sexier is good about that is you're not going to go around a cocktail party and say, Oh, I invest in all these great companies that are worth a hundred million dollars. It's just not, it's not going to get anyone excited, but the returns are good. The key is returns. That's that really is the bottom line, especially nowadays. Investors are looking for something more than just uh, paper. Uh, they do want to feel what an exit is. And that exit could be four or five times what they put in. But at the end of the day, in a fund, that's a win. And uh, it's not just about the investment side that's the win. I think in, in general, it also shows a lot of value for that startup that uh, you didn't look at every startup as being have to be a unicorn. Uh, you know, they get looked over a million times or by 170 funds, looked them over because they wanted unicorns only uh, and their money was too good for that smaller investment. And just think you're pulling away a couple wins, some more exits, and uh, you become looked at as a better way of picking and having the right choices. So uh, at the end of the day, I think you're, uh, you're onto something that's more valuable. So it'll help you raise that next round for sure. Each time you go, right? Hopefully. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that um, in kind of the way you looked at a company was that, you know, you were hard on that driven side of the, of the founder, making sure that they're, I call it being psychotic in the space that they are because I want someone that is psychotic about their business that they won't take no, they'll pivot like crazy, but they're going to win. Uh, is there a couple of things that you would kind of give a shout out to the startups and say, you know what, this is the kind of uh, mentality that you need to have, or you need to be mentoring. You need to do all these other things. Like, is there some kind of formula that you really like that seems to work across uh, the startups that you're engaged with or investing in that you think really stands out? Yeah, there's no, there's no exact formula. I think one thing is we do really like first time founders. If we see the right characteristics and one thing I'll, I actually will tell a lot of founders is especially in person, although over zoom, I can do this too, is we'll just let them talk open-endedly about their day, about the company, about certain questions and just let them go for five or 10 minutes. And I can sort of read their body language pretty well based on when I was in the, in the intelligence communities, I learned how to do that. And based on how they certain they describe their day, they describe a customer, they describe a certain problem. You can generally tell that they have what it takes to actually push this company forward and can they actually grow this and inspire others to help them. And are they willing to actually like really pick up a shovel and dig for as long as they have to dig to get this thing going in the right direction. And there's, there's sort of that, the persistence is what we're looking for that chip on their shoulder, a little bit of a, a little bit of swagger. I think we need 
little bit of confidence, but also that humbleness of I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm trying to build this. And this is my first company. And there's, there's certain patterns you can look for. And most of our founders have those patterns, which pay off really well, because in most cases, they're not going to let the company fail. They're hell bent on solving this problem. And they already have a pretty big head start. In most cases, they have a million in revenue or so. So they're already pretty far down the tracks. Yep. No, I like that. The chip on the shoulder. And I think that what you, you, you bring up there is uh, personality. You're getting them to let a little bit loose so that you can understand how they actually problem solve in the problems that they're being faced with. How do they iterate it to you? Are they complaining and not doing anything about it? Or are they giving you the complaint with a solution that shows that they're thinking about both sides of the, of the uh, uh, panel, if you will. And that to me is pretty valuable because, you know, even when you have a team, if they're coming to you with problems and they're like, Hey, this doesn't work. And you're like, Oh my, like, could you come to me with the reverse of that here? This doesn't work, but then here's my answer and here's how we're going to solve it. And then we can force an interaction and have some collaboration to come out with that end goal. But um, I think you get a lot from those startups when they are focused on the solution. You know, there is a problem. You're the guy that's got to solve it or you're the lady that's got to uh, solve this. So figure it out now. Yeah. There's that tenacity of I'm going to figure this out. I don't really care how, but I'm going to figure it out. Yep. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's awesome. So in the, I guess in the end of it all, you're heavily focused on these first time founders. Is there a board? Is there a team? Is there something else that you really got to get behind to or, because it's early on, you take that risk and then you help them build a team or you help them build a, a board of advisors or directors. Is there that kind of facilitation that goes on as well? Yeah, we try to help them any way we can. If it's finding customers, finding board members, finding other investors, finding customers, finding other people to work at the company, just whatever the company needs or the founder needs. In a lot of cases, they have some early investors, maybe 500K or a million or even 2 million raised. So they have some people early on. They usually have one or two other board members. They've got hopefully another either co-founder or someone that's somewhat significant, whether it's the CTO or it's this, the CF, someone that actually understands the business or can sell. Cause when it's one founder doing everything, that's danger territory. Cause if they walk away or something happens to them, you don't really know what happens with the company. So we'd like to see at least kind of one other key employee that's part of the company and that's actually helping to build it. But other than that, I mean, it's really, we're looking for one or two people driving the ship, ideally two or three and that have a singular vision that are bought in that have enough equity to matter. So if they have 5% of the equity, that's not really enough. I want to see at least 15 or 20% or even 30% for the key people, because that's, what's going to keep them there. Very cool. And you guys lead when you guys go into this um, discussion and going through all the breakdown with the company and learning more about them before you make an investment. Uh, are you, um, are you guys looking at this business from, short, mid-term, long-term investment, or are you just saying, you know what, we're gonna come in right now, we're gonna take up the 500,000 round, we're gonna take up the whole thing, we're gonna be your biggest investor, we're gonna work with you on the next round, the next round, all the way through, you're stuck with us, we love you, we're in. Is that kind of the approach, or? It'll vary, I mean, we wanna be friendly with other VCs and other investors, and that's sort of what we, we've uh, we built the, the fund on, is we have a good reputation, I think in general, among most other investors, is we try to play well with them, if it's a tight allocation, we'll make sure that someone else gets an allocation. If it's a bigger round, we'll take up more of the rounds. We'll lead. We won't lead. We don't necessarily need a board seat, although we may want an observer seat if we're writing a big check. We, we, we'll be flexible with the founder. We want to make sure that it's a good fit. And if there's good rounds later on, that makes sense. We'll invest. If there aren't, then we'll connect them with other people that will. So it's, we're never going to guarantee we're going to be able to raise someone money, but usually we can. 
Awesome. So you're always there, which is good. You're always helping them through the cycles and uh, figuring out how to balance them out. Since you've made the original investment, you want to carry through all the time. Yeah, we want to help. There's some pride in, in, a, in investment. We don't want it to fail, so we want to help them as much as we can. Perfect. Uh, you, you mentioned one last thing before we jump into the rapid fire questions. You mentioned um, a comment about, and you just did it again, the fail side uh, and having the uh, you know percentage of fails. So nobody ever talks about that. Uh, it is kind of the um, that secret piece of investing that everybody kind of hides, I guess, behind the uh, donuts. They don't want anybody to see it. So is there, uh, when you look at this part of it, um, do you go in with that type of information that, hey, you know what, we know things are going to fail, we get that, you know, but here's what our thesis states, we're going to do our best to hold them up and do the best to move them forward, but we're also going to be the first one to tell them that, hey, this isn't working, we can't pivot, we're going to shut her down. Like, is that a mentality that you guys go in with your investments on and when you're talking through things? Yeah, it's a learning lesson. I think a lot of people do try to hide those, uh, hide the dead, so to speak, but in a lot of ways, you got to learn why it actually happened and how it happened and try to avoid that in the future as much as you can and we had a call two hours ago with one of our LPs that's asking like, what are your problem child or children in the portfolio? What are the bad ones? And that was the first question out of his mouth. And we were open with him and said, these are the two ones that, you know, are a little shakier than the others. And here's why. And it's, you got to take away learning lessons from that because you want to avoid that in the future. You can't keep making the same mistake twice and you can't hide it. It's great to talk about successes and all these, you know, crazy multiples or crazy markups, but you want to talk about the bad ones too, because it's part of the fund. That's one thing I think going forward, we don't want to hide. I think some funds do hide that. And there's a lot of reasons to do that, but I'd rather just be completely open and say, here's the good, here's the bad, here's everything in between. I love it. We have our investor update uh, (laughs) two weeks from now. And that's the approach that we're going forward with, right? Is, you know, we don't want to hide anything. We're transparent. We want our investors to keep coming back and be excited for what we're doing. So here's the wins. Here's the, the shaky parts. But at the end of the day, what can you guys do to help our shaky parts get better? Uh, because there are opportunities there for other brains to come in and think of other solutions, right? Yeah, and there's solutions too, especially we're going to have an advisor meeting in about a month. We have, uh, we have 12 advisors that are kind of close to our fund. And we're going to go over those two companies and say, here are the options. Here's what's happening. You guys have any ideas? Do we put this together in a SPAC? Do we multiply, put this with other companies? I mean, what, what do we do to try to help the founder versus you know, six months from now saying, Hey, XYZ shut down. I want to get out in front of it and say, can you guys help? Can you do anything? What do you suggest? Yeah, no, that's great. I love that, that, uh, approach. We've, um, we had one company where we needed to do that with, and we continued to work with them on that capacity, but it's a really long story on, on what they went through. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it is the tough ones to face. And you know what? We support the, even today, no matter what, we still support that entrepreneur for what they went through. And, you know, I, I think even on their next time they go to raise, we'll be the first ones in line because they, they did a phenomenal job on, on building and selling, but they just ended up getting slighted in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, they admit the fault, but at the same time, there's a lot of learning. So it's, it's, uh, that's the type of person you want to get into for that second round, because you know that they're going to be all over making, uh, their next, next, uh, venture huge. And you want to see that they're willing to fight for and they're communicating. One big mistake I see founders saying they're doing if the company's failing or about to fail or sort of in the final stages is they'll clam up and they won't tell anyone anything that's happening. And the company will very quietly sell for some small amount of money and they won't communicate anything to anyone. Yep. And you have to proactively reach out to them three times and say, what is happening? What happened to the company? What, what is the status? Can I write this off? Like what is going on? Yeah. I, I have one angel investment that 
literally shut down like two years ago and hasn't told anyone. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't want to chase you down five times and tell me the company failed. Just tell me it failed. Tell me the terms. Tell me what happened. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's a pet peeve of ours, pet peeve of mine at least. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. Uh, it, it's, um, and I hear it quite a bit actually with, because of COVID, you have a lot more places that have closed the doors and the feedback that's going back to the investors. They're like the last person to find out, right? Like their neighbor and the schools know about the fail, but uh, the investor who put the time in to help, they don't have a clue, but they can't find them either. So I, I think that there's the transparency is the excitement of when I get the money, but then the transparency of sharing what I've done with the money and the timing and how you've grown the company or how the company's gone in a different direction. Uh, I think all that needs to be shared, you know, wins and losses on both sides. And it benefits the, the opportunity for future um, investment because one, they came back to you, they shared, they update you, kept you in the loop. It, has some, it gives you more interest and more reason to keep following or investing in their next business because you like their approach and you liked how they were uh, solid on updating you versus you spent half your life chasing that company to get nowhere and you know they come back and knock on the door looking for funding and you're kind of like, do you think I want to do this again? Uh, created a lot of tension versus it was easy just update quick, quick updates. So, Yeah, that's one other thing too. I wish more companies did monthly updates versus quarterly or bi-yearly or yearly. Yep. Because if they send a monthly, even if it's like a paragraph or two paragraphs, I, I know what's going on in the company if I'm not keeping a close tab on it. I usually am, but if I'm not, it's good. Plus, I can forward it on to my LPs. They know what's going on in the company. I can help them. They can help them, especially if there's an ask in there, which I think every company should do. It takes an extra hour a month just but it's the ROI on it's probably pretty high. I, w- I would agree. Yeah. But we're going to do that with one of our companies right now and they're doing a big update tomorrow at, or supposed to be. And uh, the same thing, it was, you've got a line of investors that will reinvest in what you're doing, set it up, sweeten the deal. Like why go spend all that time trying to do something else, just update them and they're going to love you. So if you don't go in with the update, then you keep creating dissonance and they have no interest to follow there. And eventually when you go to them, they're going to be like, I haven't heard from you in two years, man. I don't care how great you're doing. I want them to know something. So it's a tough, it's a tough balance. And you're right. Usually when it's down, no one wants to say anything. And when they're up, they're too busy to say anything. So you, there's got to be a fine balance in there where everybody's feeding each other the right information to keep it moving forward. But keep your biggest people that uh, helped you at the beginning. Give them the knowledge so that they can keep promoting you and pushing you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's put a calendar invite for an hour every month just to do it. And that way you do it. Yep. Agreed. All right, Scott, let's jump into uh, our rapid fire questions. And then uh, we'll have like one final big question for you, maybe two, and then we'll, uh, uh, we'll move from there. But uh, some of them we've answered. So, but we'll, we'll jump right into them. So uh, what's your favorite part of it, of investing in startups? Working with founders. How many companies or dollars do you invest per year? Uh, in the fund? Correct. Uh, we do about six to eight deals a year, probably three to five-ish million a year in invested total. Personally? Uh, personally, it'll vary pretty widely. Uh, it depends on what deals I'm seeing. Okay. Uh, do you do follow-up investments? We do. I do too. Okay. Uh, any notable portfolio companies you'd like to share? Oh yeah, there's tons. I always like to talk about the portfolio. There's one called Osmosis Health, which is out raising right now in, in October, probably closed by November or December by the time this thing airs. Uh, there's one called Round Trip Health, which is based in Philly, which I'm really bullish on. Major Clarity, which is in Richmond. Uh, one called Naya Health, 
which is partly in LA, partly in Baltimore. That's out raising now, which will probably be closed in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, there's a number of companies I'm really bullish on a number of them in the early late portfolio, some of my own portfolio, but they all have a lot of them are first time founders. They're really, they have that chip on their shoulder. They have that grit. They'll push through anything and they have pushed through anything and they've done really well. And I'm really happy and proud for them. I love it. Uh, any verticals you focus on outside of health? Cause it looks like you focus on health quite a bit. We do a lot of health tech. We do some cyber. We do basically anything in B2B SaaS. Those are the right metrics, whether it's churn, whether it's uh, sales cycles, anything in between. It just comes down to the right founders, the right opportunity. Can this thing go from eight or so million in post money or a million in ARR up to about 10 or 15 in ARR and 100, 120 in, in exit? If it can get there, I don't care if it's construction technology, if it's health tech, if it's cyber, I don't care. I love it. Uh, do you have any preferred terms on your investments? We do very clean terms. We don't do anything out of the ordinary, nothing exotic, mostly templates. I don't like spending money on lawyers and neither do most companies. I tend to prefer priced rounds versus uh, safes or, or notes, but we're flexible. Okay. Uh, any uh, crazy stuff that you look for in due diligence? We do a lot of diligence behind the scenes. A lot of people will do reference calls, which I actually find are really overrated. Uh, they can be valuable, but a lot of the stuff you discover behind the scenes is actually more valuable. And we've discovered actually one company that was complete fraud going through diligence. And we did that on our own without actually even telling anyone in terms of like, we didn't actually interface with anyone that the company knew we were interfacing with. We did it without the company's knowledge and we discovered it is actually a fraudulent company. Wow. Uh, we, you can discover a lot behind the scenes without actually even interfacing with the founder without actually taking their time, which is good for them and good for us. Big time. Well, that was a good catch then. It was. We saved a couple family offices, a couple million dollars. Love it. Uh, you mentioned that you guys lead rounds. That's great. You mentioned that you'll take board seats based on, on value. Uh, what other ways do you look at helping startups outside of the money? So we try to be helpful and we also try to get out of their way. So as a founder years and years ago, I valued the ones that actually helped when I needed help and then got out of the way when I didn't want them in the way. So we're not, I'm not proactively reaching out to them usually every week or every you know, two weeks or every day, like some funds are like, Hey, what's going on? Who'd you close? What's going on? It's what do you need to help with? Do you need a customer? Do you need a COO? Do you need a CFO? Do you need uh, a partner? What, what do you need? Do you need someone to do marketing collateral for you? We'll find it. So it's kind of plugging in where the founder needs help. Are you raising around? Do you need help with that? And then getting out of the way. I like it. Uh, Last, last question in the rapid fire. Do you recommend mentorship or coaching for your founders? We do. Uh, we have a lot of LPs that do want to mentor the companies and want to be advisors. The one thing I'm a little cautious of, if, the, if a mentor is not adding a lot of value, meaning they don't have a lot of credibility in industry, they're not going to be hands-on. I don't love seeing uh, mentors take equity or take warrants. I want to see them just help the company. And if they get something out of it, that's great. I don't love seeing them giving something to get an advisor unless it's someone very significant, but we do try to look for mentors with the company to help them. Usually they're one or two or three off type opportunities. They're not continuous because in most of those cases they're looking for equity, which I don't necessarily love founders giving away. Well, I agree. I like that. Uh, okay. So the uh, rapid fire questions are done. You did very well. Good job. I give you uh, four stars out of five. I'm just kidding. You get five out of five. Uh, didn't want to create any stress there for you. But um, so is there the, the, there's really two more questions. The, this question is, 
Is there a heartfelt story that you have around a startup that you were working with that maybe you didn't invest in, maybe you did, uh, that you just saw that just went through hell and high earth to get back to something and then they just found their groove and took off, but they were on the verge of sinking, they were on the verge of victory and then they sunk. Like, is there some story that just blows your mind and you were like so impressed by anything that occurred? Just something that the audience can really get excitement about. There's a couple, nothing super dramatic. I'm trying to think of a couple. There is, most of them have actually been pretty smooth sailing in terms of starting the company, scaling it. There've been obviously bumps in the road, but most of them are pretty smooth. I mean, there's, I actually can't even think of any that are super emotional or any, uh, had a lot of drama. I mean, there's a couple of companies that are having a lot of societal impact, which is good. I mean, major clarity for one is having a ton of impact on kids that are in high school trying to figure out their career pathways, trying to figure out what they want to be in life, changing their career pathways, taking the right courses, uh, getting people to actually get jobs. They've had a lot of impact. That's, that's great. But I can't say that they've had any, you know, dramatic twists in the, in the road or anything crazy happening. That one's still impactful. That's good. I like things that are uh, making a change and helping people's lives improve. So that's pretty good. I like it. Sometimes we're always looking for impact because then we can relate. And the yep. reason why we go for that hard hitting one is because you're sitting at home having a tough go, trying to figure out how to make your business work. And, you know, someone comes along and gives you that push up story, which is, you know, uh, I was living on uh, food stamps and I was able to convert this and change this. And, you know, sometimes those work, but I think at the end of the day, it just shows that somewhere in there that we all find diversity. We all fight through things to get where we need to be. And uh, sometimes you've got to reach out and ask someone for help. And that's going to help you get a little bit further ahead too. So you can't be afraid of those things. I mean, there is one round trip health in Philly. Mark, the founder, called me it's now probably two years ago. I can't even remember. Two and a half years, probably two and a half, maybe three, no, two and a half years ago, I think. And he, he had a great company. He had some traction. He had a great product that actually, he, I mean, they had people in hospitals calling him, literally crying, saying, this is saving my life. This is the best thing I've ever seen. I can actually do what I need to do for the patients in the hospital. I can get them to their appointments. I can get them the care they need. Like this is unbelievable. It's revolutionary. This is, you know, 10 seconds of work versus a five page word document I have to work through. This is so much better. So there are stories there and he was potentially raising his series A. This is, I think two and a half years ago. I can't even remember. And I got a call from him and he's normally really upbeat, really energetic. And he was kind of a little downcast. Like, I don't really know what's going to happen here. I have some trouble raising, like got any ideas and told him, send me your pitch deck and I'll figure something out. Cause I really believed in him and still really believe in him and sent it off to a couple of funds. I know that lead rounds, lead series A. And I said that this is the deal you have to do. And I sent him to three funds specifically that I knew were all looking at deals and went back to Mark and said, I'll figure something out for you. You fast forward a couple of weeks later, all three of them were interested. One of them gave a quick term sheet. It was a great term sheet and they ended up taking it and they've actually followed on in their series B and the company's doing extremely well through COVID before COVID. But he was, you can see Mark, again, really upbeat, really energetic, first time founder, knew the problem firsthand, but kind of down on himself because he was having trouble raising money yeah. and he needed to raise that money. And it was kind of dark for him at that moment, but you know, it gets bright eventually. You just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and, he was solving a really big problem and he was doing it the right way and he just had to keep going. I love it. But he did do one thing. He reached out and asked for help. Yep. And uh, that's where people will always step in to help out when you do that. And I think the fear for um, founders is that they tend to forget that asking for help is a good thing versus a bad thing. Pride steps in, but asking for help can really generate some really good turnaround because 
people are tend to be inclined to help, right? And uh, I, I think it just takes a few minutes to do it, and you'll find uh, hopefully the right person you reached out to will be able to guide you at least a little bit further than where you were. Yeah, and I was happy to do it. I, I really believed in what he was doing, and you know, found a VC that believed in what he was doing too. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, all right, so the second last question, and this is something that I, I'm, we're just throwing in new today, something a little different because I was listening to a podcast from a startup company that we've been working with, and I really loved their podcast and I really enjoyed their approach on this. So I'm kind of, in a way, uh, borrowing their approach on this because I love the fact that it made it uh, somewhat more personable. So uh, favorite card game? That's a tough one, actually. I'd say probably poker, although uh, I don't play a lot of cards. I'll play Monopoly. I actually played Monopoly for the first time in like 20 years at my girlfriend's parents' house on Sunday. That was pretty interesting. Saturday, that's pretty interesting. Monopoly. All right. So you've got Monopoly. You've got poker. Favorite sports team? Uh, probably college. I got to go UVA. Nice. College is good. I just spent some time. I went to – I watched uh, – uh, it was actually a year ago now I went down to uh, watch some football games, uh, crazy football games. It was actually super amazing. By the way, you guys put on the best show ever when it comes to college ball. And, uh, like, literally they were playing Metallica, the whole place, 100,000 people stomping up and down cheering. By far none, I was like, man, you take this and put this in Toronto, the whole city would shake. It would be intense. <laughs> um, brilliant, brilliant. All right. The one they used was, and I, this is the one I'm going to borrow from it, and I will come up with something more original, but this was on the spot right now coming up with this. Uh, your favorite movie, and what character would you play in the movie? That's a tough one. It's hard to pick one because there's so many movies I like. It is really hard to pick one. I mean, I think the favorite movie is probably Forrest Gump. It's hard to pick a character because I'm not really sure of Forrest Gump. I don't know who I'd actually be in that, that movie. Yeah. Uh, it is hard to pick one of those, actually, the more I think about it. It's hard to pick one character that I really relates to or kind of go back to, but yeah, it's hard to pick one. I don't, I don't know that I'd pick one from that movie. That's definitely my favorite movie. All right. Well, you can think about that one, and then when we do a follow-up interview in a couple of years, we'll uh, go back on that one and figure out what character that uh, you'd fit into. Well, the funny thing is I don't watch a lot of movies anymore. I don't really have the time, unfortunately. I'll watch, like, <laughs> I'll watch the trashiest reality shows I can, I can find. Yep. Usually, I mean, dinner girlfriend will watch like Married at First Sight Australia, which is an amazing show. It's so trashy. It's, it's so much fun to watch. Probably don't relate to anyone on that show, but it's an amazing show to watch. You just completely zone out or like Below Deck and Bravo or uh, 90 Day Fiance, like the trashiest stuff you could find because I can just turn my brain off and it's just fun to watch. Yeah. Well, uh, that's good. I, I, I like that. It's a, it's a good approach. And uh, my, my brain's trying to think of all of these shows and what, what show do I like and where would I fit in? So I can't even answer my own question, but <laughs> I still love it. So uh, I want to thank you, Scott, for obviously sharing. I, I thought it was a, a great discussion. I learned lots uh, and I always take lots of notes, um, old school. But uh, really at the end of the day, I think that uh, you provided a lot of great value to the ecosystem. So thank you for that. And what we like to do on the show is we like to give you the last word. So anything you want to share to the investors or to startups, anything, advice, comments, feedback, whatever you like, I give it to the floor to you. And then uh, again, thank you very much for your time today. I'd say if there's any good companies, especially up North in Canada that are fitting our criteria, definitely reach out. We're always looking around and 
we don't have any Canadian companies in our portfolio. I'd like to have a couple. Done. Well, November 26th, you're going to join our event <laughs> and we're going to get you a couple of those companies. Sounds good to me. I like it. All right, Scott, have a fantastic day and thanks again for your time. All right, you too. Thanks again. All right, man. Cheers. Bye. Well, that was Scott Garber. Fantastic. Man, there's so many cool investors that I get to meet nowadays. Uh, you know, this job, if you call it a job, this investment opportunity that we've been working on and doing has gone from uh, being amazing, talking to amazing startups, to now being even more amazing, talking to so many cool investors. And uh, I learned a lot today from him. I think Scott brought a lot of great things from great startups that they're working with that he's passionate about, um, but talked a lot about the product side you know, how you get your product to market, focus, you know, instead of having 10 products, have two or three, figure out which one works best, make that investment work for you. Uh, focus and spend the money and the time and resources in the right spot. Uh, that makes a big difference. Uh, you know, they're out of the US, they're in Baltimore, they're, they're doing a lot of things in the Washington State, DC area. Um, first time founders, which is what they're a big fan of. And they look for people with personality, man. They want people that are driven, chip on their shoulder, going hard. So. I don't think uh, they could have said it any better than that. So they're looking for Canadian companies, fantastic. But at the end, they're just looking for great investments. So they kind of gave you the criteria, which is what we all got to work towards and finding uh, a way to get our businesses into a position that they're going to want to have an interest to invest in. So uh, great chat with Scott and you guys are awesome. Have a great day.